0: You're listening to Comedy Central.
1: Growing up, I lived across the street from Yankee Stadium. I could hear the crowd. I could smell the glizzies. (laughs) White people, those are hot dogs. When Red Sox fans asked me for directions to the stadium, i point them straight to the projects. It was beautiful. Then in 2009, they built a new Yankee Stadium right next to the old one, and it looked basically the same. It was like Drake's last two albums. You couldn't tell them apart. <laughs> but there was one huge difference. The cost to the public. The city handed over 20 acres of public parkland and a billion dollars to tax money. So the house that Ruth built really became the house that you and I built. Well, mostly you. I'm a sovereign citizen. I don't pay taxes. <laughs> but this happens all the time. Just last year, New York gave the Buffalo Bills $600 million to build a new stadium. 600 million. That's almost as much as NYPD spends to stop $50,000 worth of turnstile jumping. (laughs) So how does this happen? Why are billionaire owners getting welfare to build stadiums? It's something I want to talk about in tonight's Long Story Short. Now, we're in a sports stadium building boom, and just about every one of them is funded by taxpayers. So how are billionaire team owners able to get these sweetheart deals? Easy. When asking for taxpayer subsidies, teams come to a community like a dude asking for an open marriage. (laughs) Nah, girl, it's not just good for me, it's good for you too. (laughs) Now they say these stadiums will spread economic growth throughout the community. Construction jobs. Restaurants, Taylor Swift body doubles. <laughs> now, come on now, you think she's watching Travis Kelsey and doing a show in Argentina an hour later? <laughs> nah, that math is not math then. come on. <laughs> yeah, see? <laughs> now, these owners also claim these stadiums will increase property values, which is one of the biggest lies in the world. What kind of cycle was like, yeah, I want 50,000 drunk idiots pissing on my stoop every night. <laughs> no way, bro. If any drunk idiots going to piss on my stoop, it's going to be me. <laughs> Next, they promise to donate money to the community or build affordable housing. And if none of that works, uh, they threaten to move the team. And it usually works because even though using taxpayer money in stadiums is usually unpopular, losing a team could end the politician's career. Like, for example, if Mayor Eric Adams lost us to Knicks, he would be deported. (laughs) All the way back to his real home in New Jersey. (laughs) But the truth is, a lot of the time, those owners are bluffing. And we know that because they admit it. David Sampson, the former president of the Marlins, largely credited with pulling off the worst stadium deal for Miami-Dade taxpayers. That's actually a pretty easy playbook. I get a lot of credit for doing the Marlins Park deal, but it really wasn't very difficult because Miami did not want to lose its baseball team, and all we had to say is that we're ready to leave Miami if we don't get Mm. a deal done. Let me ask you, were the Marlins going to leave Miami, David? Truly. Absolutely not. (laughs) See? these guys are full of shit. <laughs> they were never going to leave Miami because no one ever leaves Miami. Like, even people who are just visiting don't leave Miami. Now a cousin who went to a bachelor party six months ago, he's still in the club partying with BBLs. <laughs> so the teams get their free subsidies and now that they have their brand new stadium that boosts their value. But don't worry, because in return the city gets hundreds of millions of dollars worth of jack shit. Economists who study stadium subsidies say little or none of the money makes it
0: back to taxpayers. One economist estimated that the contribution of a professional baseball team is similar to that of a mid-sized department store. As a University of Chicago economist aptly put it, if you want to inject money into the local economy, it would be better to drop it from a helicopter than invest it in a new ballpark.
1: Wait, that's an option? <laughs> Yo, I wish they'd drop a, gi- a giant bag of money in my neighborhood. Like, rest in peace to the person it lands on, but it'd be a payday for the rest of us. <laughs> so the economic boost they promised doesn't pan out. And I know that personally, because I saw that in the Bronx. In exchange for that 20 acres of parkland, the Yankees promised to donate $40 million to affected areas. But the media community has not seen a dime from the team. And more immediately, And more importantly, we haven't seen a World Series in like 20 years, (laughs) dog. Like, if you want to screw my community out of 40 million, fine, that's business. (laughs) But me not getting a ring, that's personal. (laughs) I mean, at the very least, these teams could toss out some more shirts during games. Like, how do you have 25,000 fans in the arena and only toss out 10 t-shirts? <laughs> and they're all size XL? Do mediums cost more? And also, could we please get a t-shirt cannon that could hit the 300s? What the <laughs> f-? Up top in the row, up top! And the thing that really gets me heated, these stadiums aren't even that old. Stadiums for the Braves and the Rangers last like 20 years before they built new ones. You can't be replacing a stadium that Leonardo DiCaprio would still hit. (laughs) I'm not gonna be in Titanic 2, sorry. But you know what the worst part is? How much this sucks for the fans? Because suddenly the team they've been rooting for their whole lives starts extorting them for a fortune. And all they can do about it is to go to the stadium and cuss out the owner. Which is what they did in Oakland.
0: Check this out, A's fans packing the Oakland Coliseum for the first time in what seems like forever to send a blunt message to the athletics top brass. A season best crowd of nearly 28,000 A's fans came out to the Coliseum for what was deemed a reverse boycott which encouraged owner John Fisher to sell the team so it can remain in Oakland instead of moving to Las Vegas. And
2: tonight, the Coliseum erupted with one-of-a-kind chants and cheers. Sell the team! Sell the team! Fisher, get the
3: hell out of here. 30,000 people are gonna show up
1: tonight to show John Fisher that he sucks. <laughs> That's how you do it. Listen, I'm an East Coast boy, but Oakland, paying $20 to cuss out a man you've never met is big New York energy. Respect. <laughs> but, long story short, politicians gotta stop falling for the stadium griff. If we're getting ripped off by team owners, it should be the old way. We're $14 Bud Lights. <laughs> To the Daily Show. My guest tonight is a two-time WNBA champion who plays for the Las Vegas Aces. Please welcome Sydney Colson. Oh. Sydney, congratulations on another championship. Thank you. Listen. Thank you.
2: Okay, we got Vegas fans in here.
1: Oh, you yeah, got Vegas fans everywhere. Oh, Sadly, this is supposed to be Liberty Turf. Right. You know, I've been Liberty game. Oh, that was too. Did you come here to gloat?
2: No, I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, actually. Talk that talk. But actually, I don't have to. Most of them were cheering for the Aces. I love it. Okay, wow. So well, look- man, we got ba- – I, I think we just got W fans here, though. Yep. I, I appreciate that. Yes.
1: Yeah. yeah. I was
2: Because
1: so I was actually at that game, and it was the highest-rated game in the WNBA history. This season, people are actually watching the game. People are coming out. Y'all are in. What does it feel like to be part of that movement? We're now like you're more visible, and people are really rocking the WNBA.
2: It's incredible. Uh, I think about when I came in the league in 2011 and what it looked like then versus what these arenas will look like today, and what how many how many times we'll see players on commercials, on TV shows, on just a variety of things. It wasn't anything I, I ever expected to see in like my time that I was playing, but especially as like a young black player to see women that look like me doing it and killing it. I was like, I just got to keep working.
1: Okay. All right. Now going into game four, you were down two star players. And that's the game you had choice words for all the doubters. Oh uh, yeah. I think we have a clip. Okay.
2: People wanted to count us out cause we had two of our starters
1: You got the ring to ring the back <laughs> But do you feel you're one of the best trash talkers in the WNBA?
2: When I tell you I'm not even a trash talker. I'm I'm not. This particular moment blew up and it makes me look like such
1: now I'm loving it. A
2: douchebag?
1: I'm loving your villain era.
2: I'm like, I didn't even know I would be in it, but I'm like, people, I'm, I'm trolling people at this point online, because yeah. I don't care, they're like, you only had two points, she's got two points, how's she on The Daily Show? That's gonna be them. Yeah. Today.
1: I mean, speaking of two points, it kind of got cooked on Twitter today by Asia. I know, right? Okay. It'd be your own teammates. It'd be your own teammates. She said, you thought the whole team was going to see Usher?
2: <laughs> and she
1: tweeted, Response to, LOL, LOL, Sid scores two points in game four. and thinks she gonna get usher tickets.
2: Oh. Wow. You gonna take that? I'm not gonna take that. I responded to it. I know you saw that.
1: Okay. Is this like playful rivalry? This is
2: for sure. I love
1: like, that. Yes, D- man. Just like, we haven't seen that before in the WNBA. Just like, even like the rivalry between the Liberty and you. But it's like, so yeah. you guys respect each other on such a level.
2: For sure. It's like... When you got a sibling or you got cousins that you grew up with, like, you rag on each other, you joke on each other, but you love them.
1: Got you, got you. You're now working on a new unscripted comedy series called The Sid and T.P. Show. Yeah. Are you trying to take my job? No, <laughs> No, tell me about your show.
2: So, uh, the logline is, like, two WNBA benchwarmers who try to become the face of the league, even though nobody asked them to. And, um... <laughs> It's just hilarious. There's a lot of, um, like, man-on-the-street type mm-hmm. stuff. Um, a few, like, sketches that we do. Um, and us just anybody who knows our personalities or has seen us, like, on the ACES social, I think they'll enjoy it. You got to have me on. Oh, season two. We're hoping for it. Let's go. Say less. Yes, come on. on. The TV show is now streaming on football's national channel and Football sports.
1: Is a best-selling author whose latest book, *Chain Gang*, also is a finalist for the National Book Award. Please welcome my man, Nana Kwame and Aja Brenya. Wow.
4: Okay, okay.
1: Now, uh, full disclosure: you currently reside in what borough? The Bronx. BXO did. Okay. <laughs> I'm only telling y'all because if you see the drip, you'd wonder. Okay. <laughs> Gang Gang, your first novel. Tell us about it. Because it's super popular. Everyone I'm talking to, everyone I talk to, I was saying, having you on the show, everyone's like, I read that book already. So, what am I missing out
4: on? Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, So, my first novel is about an imagined future in which convicted wards of state can opt out of a sentence of at least 25 years and participate in death matches. Mm. So, it's really about abolition of the prison system, but in a fun way. So, basically, incarcerated people can fight to the death to become free? They become gladiators, and they're fighting for their freedom, yeah. Yeah, don't give Eric Adams that idea, man. (laughs) Follow This is a
1: satirical book, Eric Adams, please. (laughs) Is it hard to write a dystopian
4: novel because we're kind of living in a dystopian novel right now? Bro, it is crazy to see it. I started this book about seven years ago, almost eight years ago, Mm -hmm. and in the process of writing it, you, I sort of watched the world become more and more aware of some of the things I was thinking about because it was becoming more and more true. We were seeing just how heinous the system was in so many different ways. Right. And so it's, um, it's difficult, but also makes me feel like, you know, maybe I'm doing something that needs to be done. Got you. And now in your book,
1: it's a for-profit prison system. Yep. Which is kind of similar to, I don't know, the NFL? Mm. Do you see any parallels there?
4: <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, no, I mean, I think that in general, our sort of consumer culture, mm-hmm. where we have this idea where people's bodies are things for us to be entertained by, uh, we've gotten really comfortable just viewing humans as a means to an end, you know? Yeah. Or outside of it being a means to an end in, in and of themselves. So I think the NFL is particularly heinous. I think, like, that's, like, the big juggernaut dot of evil white men telling black bodies to go hurt yourself. But, uh... You know I mean... <laughs> So that's all. But uh, I think that paradigm exists in a lot of other places too. Got you, got you. And in this book, your protagonist
1: is a black woman. Yes. Was that a conscious choice?
4: Absolutely, it was. I think that there's a particular way in which the black woman can be both respected but also disrespected in the same breath. I think if you think about Serena Williams. Both Serena Williams and LeBron, for example, understand a particular way of existing in the world, mm-hmm. but I think Serena understands something that's particular to her, which is always being sort of like, disrespected or reduced to sexuality, her image, and so many other type of little weird little jabs that they give her. Mm-hmm. I think that that intersection of, of being a woman, being an athlete, being someone who's in the eye of the public, all those things felt important for this book, and so it made sense for the protagonist to be a woman. That makes sense. Okay, I recently hosted the gala for the Bronx Defenders. They're,
1: yeah. the, they're uh, public defenders in the Bronx, Ooh, Yeah, hence the name, duh. But your father is also a defense attorney? Yep, he was. Did that affect your view on the, just,
4: uh, criminal justice? It absolutely, absolutely did. He told me about how, um, he was in the middle of defending someone who had committed a murder. Gotcha. And I remember being like, dang, like, okay, I guess my father's a villain. He's a bad guy. And I remember him telling me, It's not that simple. And just in that little moment, I was probably like 11, 10-ish, a little seed was planted, I think, is a big part of how this book came to be. How satisfying does it feel to actually complete your first book? Oh, my God. It's it's the the biggest reward, to be honest. The day where I sent it in and I was like, done, 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 done. Uh, It's bigger than any reward I can get. So I'm just grateful it's out there. I'm grateful people are reading it. I'm grateful people are thinking about the prison system, and how we can maybe be more compassionate. So that's really the big gift. Okay.
1: This might be a little disrespectful to you. Last question. <laughs> Mary kill. Toni Morrison, Zora Neale Hurston, James Baldwin.
4: Um, My English teacher's going to kill me. Toni's the god, mm-hmm. so I want to marry her. And then I feel bad to even say it. Zora Neale Hurston and I would have some
0: relations. (laughs) (laughs) Explore more shows from The Daily Show Podcast universe by searching The Daily Show, wherever you get your podcasts. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central, and stream full episodes anytime on Fairmount Plus. This has been a Comedy Central Podcast. you sent off today.